0: This is exactly right. The 2020s are getting stressful. What if we go back in time to the 1920s? All those flapper dresses, champagne towers, and good old-fashioned whodunits. Now is your chance with June's Journey, the mobile mystery game that puts your detective skills to the test. This game has everything. You'll play as June Parker investigating the murder of her sister. You'll travel the world searching for clues and explore lavish estates and beautifully designed scenes from the Roaring Twenties. Each is filled with hidden objects that may lead you to the killer. There are twists, turns, and even catchy tunes. And if you play well enough, you might make it to the Detective Club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android.
1: Case Files is an award-winning podcast that presents unforgettable true crime stories.
0: Presented by an anonymous host, Casefile delves deep into the crimes, investigations, and trials of solved and cold cases from around the world. With more than 250 episodes, the podcast has covered infamous unsolved mysteries, notorious murders, and lesser-known cases that deserve more attention.
1: Discover why everyone from Rolling Stone to Time Magazine is calling it a must-listen experience. Follow Casefile wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime.
1: And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them.
0: Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes.
1: And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries.
0: Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens.
1: Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold.
0: This is Buried Bones. Hey, Paul.
1: Hey, Kate. How's it going?
0: It's going really well. I heard that this is the one-year anniversary of when you had your shoulder replacement surgery. hes You can't see it, but he's doing sort of like, <laughs> are you flexing? Is this like a shoulder exercise you do? <laughs> its I'm constantly moving it. You know,
1: it's one of those things where I just have to keep it going. And uh, yeah, you're exactly right. It's been... A year since I had my shoulder replaced, and um, you know this is a this is a big milestone because it's really at this point that I should start to uh, move towards getting back as much as I possibly can to normal function, and I'm really looking forward to that.
0: Do you have phantom pain from what it used to feel like when I had the kids? I had a c section, and I still feel like every once in a while I can feel one or both of them kicking me. Oh, Do you wow. get that kind of a phantom pain in your shoulder?
1: No, you know, I think one of the the surprising things you know because I had severe arthritis in my left shoulder, mm-hmm. and I didn't really realize how much chronic pain I was in until after I've had the surgery. And that chronic pain is gone now. There's still, you know, sharper pain when I overdo something. You know, after after the repair, uh, but you know, sleeping is so much better. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to wake up, and this is before I even uh, had gone into the doctor. But I would wake up in the middle mo- night after sleeping on my left side and I could not move my left shoulder. I would get up to use the bathroom, mm-hmm. and I would have to sit there and use my other arm to swing my left arm just to kind of get it to move again. I had no idea that this was arthritis starting to set in.
0: Wow. Is this one of two, or have you already had surgery on the other shoulder and I just don't remember?
1: No, it's just, it's just the left shoulder. My right shoulder is, is okay for now, and it really is an improvement. I had lost so much range of motion, that uh, I could hardly open up my armpit to put deodorant on. That's how bad I had gotten. It was just, I mean, it it was pitiful. And when the surgeon opened me up, you know he made a comment and the the his uh, uh, pa who was in the the surgery uh, of course i was out but he goes how am i supposed to turn a rectangle back into you know a circle again so it will move it, it uh-huh. was that bad but uh, wow. you know he he was able to get it done a great surgeon uh, you know, I'm very happy with where I'm at. The range of motion is actually better than for my non-operated shoulder. Um, it's just I'm so weak. Mm-hmm. It's taken a long time to recover. You know, the strength and, and movement, but it's it's improving every day. It's like two steps forwards, one step back.
0: Well, I don't know about you, but there are very few times in my life where I have celebrated the anniversaries of surgeries, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> technically on my girl's birthday, yeah. but I'm really happy for you. I'm glad things have gone so well with your shoulder. I like to see when you scratch your back with the scratcher and you do have that mobility. That's the proof is in the pudding for me.
1: Yeah. You know, in fact, now I can do it with my <laughs> left hand, right?
0: Amazing. Amazing. It's all worth it.
1: Yes, my goal is is to be able to scratch my back without having to use a back scratcher. Uh, Oh,
0: that would be good. Well, time to get a little serious. I need you to switch from the surgery to a Lover's Lane story. This is a very strange case with lots of twists and turns. So I think you're going to really enjoy it. So let's go ahead and set the scene. This is the case of the murders of a young couple who were gunned down after stopping at a lover's lane in Great Falls, Montana in 1956. I want to talk about the area briefly. The weather is what's going to be interesting in this case because it is an outdoor crime scene. So we're in Great Falls in the 1950s. It was booming. It was one of the bigger areas, urban areas of Montana. And by 1955, Great Falls was the state's second largest city with about 40,000 people. And there were a lot of job opportunities there, including an Air Force base that was there in 1956 and continues to draw airmen there from all over the country. It's uh, Malmstrom. If you're from Montana and I butchered that, I'm sorry, Malmstrom. Air Force Base. So that plays a little bit of a role here but let me tell you about the victims, the people that we're going to be focusing in on. The first the male is 18 year old Dwayne Bogle and he was in Great Falls because he was stationed at the Air Force Base. And as of January of 1956, when all of this starts to happen, he had been there for about nine months. So this is a young airman named Dwayne, and I'm just going to call him Dwayne. And then he had met a local high school junior named Patty, and her last name is Kalitsky, She was from Great Falls, and she was described as popular, pretty, strong-willed, all of the things that many times our victims fall under. Both of them were incredibly well-liked. And as a couple, they seemed to be a really nice couple, very much in love. It sounds like the families were very supportive. sounds like they were actually thinking about going on and getting married. At some point, she was probably about 16, and, and as I said, he was 18. So a very young couple, no problems that we know of. So the day after New Year's Day in 1956, Dwayne and Patty have a date and he picks her up and they go out to what we thought would be to go out to dinner and they never come back. They disappear. And the parents did not sound the alarm because they figured that they had finally eloped. They had been talking about it. And they thought, okay, they took off. And of course, no cell phones and no easy access to phones. And they just thought, they took off. So that's an interesting part of life circumstances and people reacting. We've talked about this a lot of cases from back then when there are no cell phones available to just text someone and say, where are you? Is there were a lot of assumptions being made, right?
1: You know, I'm thinking about Dwayne and he's 18 years old, so he's young, but he's an airman. He's an adult. He's stationed in Montana, probably away, maybe many states away from his own parents, so it's not his parents that are concerned at all. They don't know. It'd be Patty's parents, right?
0: Yep. They're the ones who sounded the alarm, and I wanted you to see what they looked like. They both look very young to me. You know, she's a junior, and... And he looks like like a young 18, and I know that this is just a headshot, but he does not seem to be the most formidable-looking person as far as when this finally happens, whether he was able to fight back or not. They look like kids to me.
1: Well, and and most certainly when you start talking about offender-victim interactions, you know, physical characteristics do come into play as well as skill sets, etc.
0: Yeah, Patty's parents just figured they eloped, They loved him. They loved Dwayne. They thought this would be fine. They are not the ones who make any kind of a discovery or call the police. The next morning, so this is January 3rd, 1956, around 1130, three boys were walking along the Sun River and they ran into an area which was then known as a lover's lane and eventually find Dwayne's body. As an aside, I cannot tell you how many stories that I have either read about or written about where little boys out on a hike are the ones who discover something absolutely terrible. And that's what happened here. They found his body. And before I tell you about the injuries, I just want to say that this is an outdoor scene. I know weather is important to you. So the weather report from Great Falls Tribune, when they were found, it was a clear winter day, 40 degree high. And it was a 25 to 30 degree low that night with no snow.
1: Okay. I think right now what is standing out is the locals knew this location as a lover's lane. Yep. So this informs me, well, this is a place where, you know, the kids would go to make out in the car. Mm -hmm. So the offender in this case possibly went to this location expecting to be able to find victims. So that is a possibility in that you do have a true stranger going and targeting a location where he could find a victim pool. Mm -hmm. But now it's assessing, well, what actually happened? You know, were Dwayne and Patty actually targeted by somebody they knew?
0: So let me tell you about the circumstances, and I'm going to show you a picture of his body and where it was found, and then we'll talk about the injuries. He had been found laying face down next to his car, which was still turned on with its radio playing. The headlights were on, and the emergency brake had been set. And he had been shot in the back of the head. And the killer had used Duane's own belt to restrain his hands behind his back. Reaction?
1: Obviously, he was executed with the shot to the back of the head. His hands have been bound with his own belt. It's not like the killer used binding material that he brought with him. And I'm just going to use him in, in a generic sense when I'm referring to the offender. The binding of the hands in all likelihood occurred prior to To the gunshot. Mm -hmm. So the killer is interacting with Dwayne and having to keep him controlled with the binding. The question that I would start looking at is how long did the offender interact with Dwayne? And and of course, Patty is also part of this, but right now I'm just focusing on Dwayne. How long before did the killer and Dwayne first interact? And how long did the offender have Dwayne bound before he was shot? does this suggest a possibility that the killer met up with Dwayne and Patty at a different location and then met them here or got into the car with them and forced them to come out to this location
0: what we know so far about what happened with Dwayne is police do believe that the killer forced him to his knees with his hands bound behind his back with his own belt and then shot him in the back of the head, execution style. I don't know if that tells you anything. Like, does this seem like somebody who's done this before? Is this an average person can do this?
1: Well, there's nothing that stands out about the homicide that would suggest for sure that you're dealing with somebody very experienced. What I have seen, though, with these execution-style homicides is... The inexperienced killer often shoots multiple times. Hmm. They don't have confidence that one shot is going to do the job.
0: What I want to know is, what about the idea of the car is still on, the radio is blasting, headlights are on, the emergency brake is activated. That just seems a little risky, like somebody could hear that and come up onto the scene. Or was he moving so quickly because Patty's not there, Patty's gone. He's moving so quickly to get her out of the area that it doesn't really matter to him if this stuff stays on because they're going to be in the wind.
1: Well, there's so many unknowns at this point for me to really be able to draw a conclusion. I mean, is the car on the radio playing at that location because Dwayne and Patty were there hanging out and then the killer came and then eliminated the mail threat and was able to grab Patty. Now, part of what I saw... With that location, it appeared that the, it looks like a dirt road. Mm-hmm. Was there evidence of a, another vehicle that the killer possibly pulled up in? Were there shoe impressions showing the killer's movements, et cetera? So I can't discern that from this photo, but, you know, that's part of assessing this scene that has to be taken into account because if Pat, you have a victim missing. This isn't an, an offender who's just emerging out of the bushes and grabbing her. Right. Likely he drove to this location too, Right, or had an accomplice that, you know, once he got into Dwayne and Patty's car and forced them out to this location, somebody else came and picked them up.
0: Right. Let's talk a little bit about motive, just to cross some things off. Patty's gone, so we know she could have been a motive. We do know that The police ruled out robbery, and here's why. Nothing that Dwayne had, and he had kind of a lot of stuff in the car, was taken. He had a very expensive camera that was in his car. There was a $5 bill that was in his wallet. There's other stuff that could have been taken. Nothing was taken except his girlfriend. And they do not find Patty at all that day that day of January 3rd when the boys discovered at 11.30 in the morning. So now we're talking about someone who kidnapped one person, killed the other sometime between, they just said evening is when they said goodbye to their parents, let's say 6 or 7 p.m. that night of January 2nd. And then now we're into two days later of January 4th before they're able to locate her and she is in fact dead. So... This is two days. That's a lot of time to kind of be on the run dealing with this, right, with the police?
1: Oh, that is. It most certainly is a significant amount of time. But the investigation into Dwayne's homicide, you know, that is starting the clock for the investigators. Mm -hmm. And now trying to get the victim's timeline ironed out as thoroughly as possible is a priority. This is now going To this town, people in the town, seeing, you know, if there's witnesses that saw them, you know, did they go to a restaurant? Did they stop by a gas station? And start nailing that down to figure out, is there a location that the offender could have crossed paths with them before the location out here at the Lover's Lane?
0: Okay. So, a little bit more details about what they did. There were witnesses who said they saw Patty and Dwayne at a burger joint called Pete's Drive-In around 9 p.m. that night. You know, they did what they said. They were going to go out to dinner on a date, and that is the last time they were seen alive by anyone except, of course, the killer. So, it's assumed that after they had burgers at Pete's that they went ahead and went to the Lover's Lane. But everything from nine o'clock or whenever until 11.30 in the morning the next day when Dwayne was discovered is a big question mark until we make the discovery of Patty's body. What happens with Patty is that we have that day where they're working on Dwayne's case and they're assuming that Patty's been kidnapped or that Patty was involved. We don't know. The next day after they find Dwayne's body, A county road worker found Patty's body eight miles away from where Dwayne was found. She had been shot in the head, just like Dwayne. She had been bound, just like Dwayne, forced on her knees, just like Dwayne. And she had also been sexually assaulted. And she had been dumped off a steep 20-foot embankment. And I'll show you a picture of that in a second. So... Now, I guess we know the motive, I'm assuming, which was Patty was sexually assaulted.
1: Yeah, you know, in all likelihood, anytime a woman is abducted, sexual motivation is, is likely the primary reason. It doesn't, at this point, doesn't indicate that we are dealing necessarily with a serial predator could be somebody who has known Patty and wanted to assault her uh, took the opportunity of Dwayne and Patty, you know, being isolated. But the lovers lane location, and then Patty obviously was pulled into the offender's vehicle. know, mm-hmm. I'd be interested to see the kind of the possible routes that the offender would have taken to get to this location. I'm seeing the photo of this location right here. It's it's obviously isolated from residential areas. It appears that there's farmland nearby.
0: Yeah. Right off a road. Yeah. It's almost like he opened the door and shoved her out and she had already been dead maybe.
1: Right. And and so part of my assessment of this location would be, would somebody just traveling through this area on freeway or, or prime arterial roads, would they find this just by happenstance or that they have to drive a distance on back roads to get to this location. If they did, that starts to suggest that, okay, we're dealing with somebody who's got local knowledge. And so that helps versus a transient and a truck just bombing through the the town and deciding to victimize a young teenage couple.
0: This seems like a rural, a lot of rural area going eight miles from the first crime scene. Seems like he knew exactly where he wanted to go, where he thought a good spot would be, because there has to be other stuff in between where Dwayne was on Lover's Lane versus where Patty is found. just seems pretty specific. I mean, what do you think?
1: Well, it is, you know, and, and the location of Lover's Lane is also critical. It does indicate that it's somebody who has local knowledge... There's the lover's lane. That's where there's going to be a victim pool. You're going to have young kids wrapped up with each other. Mm -hmm. So now you can easily get the drop on these kids who are distracted with each other. Also, now we have eight miles that the offender would have had to driven. Mm -hmm. But we don't know at this point, did he assault her at some location and then go straight to where her body was dumped? Or does he spend time with her, take her back I mean, there are offenders that will take victims back to their own residence Hmm. and then kill them. You know, so this is where it's now teasing out, okay, what actually happened between Patty being abducted from the Lover's Lane and her body being thrown down this fairly steep embankment in a rural area?
0: So the weapon that he used, in case you were curious, was a forty-five, and... They did not find at Lover's Lane where Dwayne was shot. They did not find any bullets or cartridges. There was only one bullet. It was just one shot. So he obviously picked up the cartridge. Again, does this point to someone who had either done this before or who really thought this through very well? This seems organized, very organized to me.
1: Well, if he's pol- what we call policing his own brass, he's picking up the cartridge case in order to prevent it being used as evidence against him. That is showing a level of sophistication. He's understanding how law enforcement could link that cartridge case back to his firearm. He said they didn't find a bullet in Dwayne's case. Uh, even at autopsy, they didn't recover the bullet.
0: Well, it just says that they were unable to find any bullets or cartridges so I guess if he were shot in the back of the head, would it have been like a through and through? I mean, would it have obviously lodged in his head?
1: Well, either could have happened. Now, with a 45, chances are, my guess is, is it's a full metal jacket bullet. It's completely enshrouded with that brass casing. And these bullets do have a tendency to overpenetrate. So if Dwayne is on his knees and the offender's behind him and shoots, it's possible that bullet exits out Dwayne's face or forehead, or some part of the front of his upper body, and possibly still has enough energy to where it goes into what I call Never Never Land. You know, when you're out in, in an outdoor location like this, and if that bullet flies an additional, you know, 75 yards into the bushes, it becomes very, very hard to locate.
0: The 2020s are getting stressful. What if we go back in time to the 1920s? All those flapper dresses, champagne towers, and good old-fashioned whodunits. Now is your chance with June's Journey, the mobile mystery game that puts your detective skills to the test. This game has everything. You'll play as June Parker investigating the murder of her sister. You'll travel the world searching for clues and explore lavish estates and beautifully designed scenes from the Roaring Twenties. Each is filled with hidden objects that may lead you to the killer. There are twists, turns, and even catchy tunes. And if you play well enough, you might make it to the Detective Club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Police are trying to put together kind of a profile in 1956 of who this person was. They feel like there aren't many signs of a struggle, either in the car or on Dwayne. There doesn't seem to be any evidence of bruising or defensive wounds. They're assuming maybe that they knew whoever the killer was and that's the reason why there's no struggle. That seems a little odd. Yeah. Two young people, if you're experienced and strong and big, you can probably contain two young people with not a lot of difficulty, especially if you have a gun pointed at them.
1: Well, and you know, a possible scenario, let's say Dwayne and Patty are engaged in conversation or other activities inside that vehicle when the offender approaches and he's got a 45 pointed at them while they're still in the car, this offender could be telling Patty, tie Dwayne up. Mm -hmm. You know, Dwayne removes his own belt and Patty ties him up. And now the male is under control at gunpoint and the offender has Dwayne get out of the vehicle and executes him. Patty at this moment realizes her life is in danger. So the offender has to move quick in order to contain her. The firearm is the ultimate control. Even as terrified as she would be seeing Dwayne being killed, realizing, "Uh uh-oh, you know, I'm in trouble now. This is a serious situation. The thought of running while the offender is on that side of the car killing Dwayne, as soon as he engages her with that firearm, you could see where she is a, what, 16? Yeah. She's probably just going to fall in line with whatever that offender tells her to do under gunpoint.
0: right. So, moving forward, a couple of things happen. One is they determine, and we need to talk about how they determine these things. They determine that Dwayne probably died around 10 p.m., maybe about an hour after they finished up eating at Pete's. They think that Patty died anywhere between four and six hours later. In 56, probably the way they determined things could be liver temperature, could be stomach contents, or could be rigor. Is rigor useless when it is literally 25 degrees at night and the body's been out there for two days?
1: Yeah, the temperatures are going to delay the onset of rigor. The temperatures are going to cause the liver temperature to drop quicker. Mm -hmm. So this is part of the variables that make using such tools to determine the time of death for either of these victims whose bodies are outside. The stomach contents is a little bit more interesting to me because they went out to dinner together. They're eating at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the pathologist possibly is seeing that their last meals, Dwayne's was much less digested and Patty's had digested more to a point to where, okay, she was kept alive for a period of time.
0: Yeah. And I think it's still clear, we know, regardless of whether they're accurate or not, that he— was with Patty Longer. He drove her, and it would just make sense considering what his motive was. They go through and interview everyone under the sun. It's not helpful that Great Falls has 40,000 people. This is where a small town would have been helpful. They interview everybody. They interview family and friends. They interview people at his Air Force base. Of course, everybody loved them. There were no enemies. There was some rumor that Dwayne and a fellow airman got into a fight over a woman. It doesn't sound like it was Patty but the guy was cleared. There are lots of things. There's a car that's found that turns out to have nothing to do with the case. There are a lot of red herrings slash dead ends. They're surprised, the police are surprised that there aren't witnesses because Lover's Lane apparently draws quite a few lovers at night on the weekends and no one was there. There are just no witnesses. Maybe it's because it was January 2nd and it was freezing, but they are really hitting a lot of dead ends. And over the years, they have as many as 35 suspects. Listen to these suspects, though. Among them was Whitey Bulger, James Whitey Bulger, who I'm sure you're familiar with, the infamous Boston mobster. He was in Great Falls in the 1950s. That seems like a little bit of a stretch. They also looked at a serial killer named Edward Wayne Edwards, who had been linked to at least five murders, two of them involving cars parked at Lover's Lanes in Wisconsin and Ohio, I guess you have to look at these people if they're anywhere in the vicinity. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. Must look at them. Now, I will tell you, having worked many of these older cases in which notorious offenders, such as Ted Bundy, yeah. Henry Lee Lucas, and Otis Toole, Tommy Lynn I mean, they're all linked to the Bay Area mild jurisdiction. And their names pop up in the case files, as do, you know, your registered sex offenders, the notorious ones. They're always looked at if there's a sexual assault. This is par for course. And especially when you don't have a true lead early on, and now you're casting a wide net. And then Mm -hmm. all of these other people, the notorious people, start to fall into that net. So I'm not surprised by that at all. You know, part of looking at what happened to Dwayne And trying to assess the offender's motive. If this was a revenge crime because of a prior interaction with Dwayne, I would have expected the offender to spend more time with him. He'd have more injuries, such as being punched in the face. Yeah. Something instead of just a straight execution. Dwayne was eliminated. He's eliminated because the offender, he's the biggest threat, and the offender was focused on Patty. Yeah. Yeah. And Patty is being sexually assaulted at some point after being abducted by the offender, based on what you told me. Yep. So this is a sexually motivated crime. Now it comes into, is this a stranger? Or is this somebody that the victims knew or had interacted with at some point prior?
0: Do we agree this is likely a local?
1: It absolutely is. Okay. Yeah.
0: What do we think about the age of this person. So you're dealing with a 16, 17-year-old girl, a 18-year-old, strong young man, both in the car, caught off guard. Are we thinking this could be someone their age or is this someone older?
1: A male their age, is physically capable of committing this crime. Mm-hmm. However, I would lean towards that you are dealing with an offender that has likely more life experience, is understanding that he would be able to control mm-hmm. two essentially adults with the use of the firearm in order to accomplish what he wants and to isolate Patty so he can sexually assault her. Mm-hmm. So I would lean that you are dealing with somebody minimally, you know, mid-20s, if not older. I couldn't eliminate somebody younger committing this crime either. And right now, I'm making an assumption that there's a single offender.
0: Mm -hmm. Would you assume that he has done something before this? Or would do something after this based on the circumstances? Hmm. Is this a career criminal kind of person? Or could it be a one-off is a bad phrase, but could this be an isolated incident in this person's life?
1: Yes, it could. Okay. As these types of cases are being solved, cases in which the circumstances, when I would assess them before they were solved, I would say this is a predator. And this is somebody who is likely serial, either has committed crimes prior or after but we're finding out that that's not the case. Okay. We're seeing a lot of these one-off offenders. They are possibly fantasy motivated. They're, of course, sexually motivated and commit these types of crimes, uh, but then they don't offend again. Hmm. And that's it's a really interesting category of this type of offender. And that, to this day, hasn't been studied enough.
0: Well, thankfully, the police in Great Falls in Montana do something very, very smart. They collect all sorts of evidence. They collect Patty's clothing. Of course, they collect everything off of Dwayne. They try to take fingerprints, all of this, including taking a vaginal swab. And our researcher, Marin, wanted me to tell you that she looked at all kinds of different coverage and she found that vaginal swabs were routine to take as evidence at the time in the 1950s, which actually surprised me. And they preserved it.
1: Well, that's the big thing. Yes, sexual assault swabs were routinely being taken by the pathologist. In my experience, working more cases out of the late 60s and 70s, the pathologist would determine whether or not semen was present. They would do a microscopic Mm -hmm. examination, looking for sperm, and then would typically throw everything out. So I can't tell you how many cases I've run across, even now on a nationwide level, since I'm consulting on cases nationwide in which the sexual assault evidence was collected that could solve the case. But the pathologist threw it out because all they could do during this time frame was, yes, semen was there. She was sexually assaulted. Yeah. So I love the fact that the investigating agency acquired the vaginal swab and put it into their property room.
0: And apparently they did a great job preserving it because I'm gonna take you step-by-step because we're talking about something that happened over two decades, starting in 2000s, where of course we know technology has changed for DNA. So let me tell you what happens first. There is a detective, and I'm gonna name him because he did some great work named John Cadner. He was a detective with Cascade County. And in 2001, he found out about this old case. He found out that there was still a vaginal swab that they had preserved well. He sent it to the state crime lab for analysis and basically came back and there's a sperm cell that didn't belong to Duane that was identified. So they ran it through CODIS and they didn't get any hits through CODIS, but there's better news to come. So what they were able to do was exclude... Whitey Bulger, which we assumed was going to be excluded to begin with, and Edward Wayne Edwards. And of course, Dwayne, his sperm wasn't present there either. So tell me a little bit about that. That was all they were able to determine from that sample in 2001. So tell me first about that technology, and I guess excluding is very important also, but also the difference between CODIS in 2001 and CODIS in 2022.
1: Okay, well, yeah, you know, two thousand and one, roughly that time frame is is when crime labs really embraced the modern DNA technology that is still in use today, mm-hmm. you know this short tandem repeat technology, what we shorten as s t r s Because it was PCR-based, this polymerase chain reaction that amplifies the amount of DNA that you have in a sample so you can actually get a DNA profile, that ended up really converting the FBI's CODA system into something that was very broadly able to be used on cases that had poor evidence. You don't have any information, I'm sure, in terms of the amount of DNA that they had off of her vaginal swab from the sperm donor. But I'm going to assume they were able to develop a full STR profile and load it up into CODIS. They would see in the you know criminal history sheets for Whitey Bulger and the other serial killer, yep, their DNA is, is up in CODIS and mm-hmm. it didn't hit. And of course, if the offender had been sampled and uploaded into CODIS, then they would have been linked back in 2001. That tells me, though, well, this, this offender's DNA has not been uploaded into CODIS, at least within the state of Montana and uh, at the national level. Mm-hmm. The technology has only improved since then. 2001 is when I linked the East Area Rapist to the original Night Stalker series using this technology. Hmm. It absolutely works uh, in 2001. So in all likelihood, this detective is also now looking at prime suspects within the case file or developing his own suspects and going and getting samples from them and directly having it compared to the sperm donor from the offender and eliminating these people. Mm -hmm. So he now has a tool that can be used to solve the case. It's a blessing when you get something like this. You're confident The sperm is from your killer. You just have to find the person. And you either rely on the databases or you develop leads and uh, get the person that
0: way. They didn't find the person. The detective worked very hard. He was able to exclude a lot of people. But based on the technology, they just ran into a dead end which was incredibly frustrating for Cadner, Detective Cadner, and for the remaining families of these two young people. It was very upsetting, very frustrating, until something happened in 2018.
1: Hmm. I wonder what that was.
0: Yeah, it changed everything. When D'Angelo was arrested, the investigators in Montana said, hell yeah, this is what we're going to do. So they took their best shot. They had um, sperm samples still that they had preserved. And so they worked with a company called Bodhi Technology. You've worked with them before?
1: I have. Uh, They've been around for a long time developing, you know, instrumentation as well as providing laboratory services across the nation. It's a private lab.
0: Okay. They run it through, it's processed, and they come up with three genetically compatible matches in the commercial DNA databases, and this was in 2019. So three matches. I'm assuming that's successful then.
1: Well, you know, the genealogy technology works a little bit differently. So it's not where you have three matches. What I am interpreting, based on what you said, is they ended up having three reasonably close relatives to the offender. These may be second cousins, which Mm -hmm. that's great when you can find second cousins to the person you're trying to identify or closer relatives. But they're not like identical matches. They just share a percentage of their DNA. But at this point, you now have starting points to build family trees using public resources, Ancestry.com, Findagrave.com, until you can find a common ancestor between these genetic relatives and then you identify all the descendants of this common ancestor. The theory is, is that the offender is a descendant from this common ancestor, the people that had submitted their DNA into the uh, genealogy databases.
0: Well, they figure out who it is. His name is Kenneth Gould. He was 29 at the time okay. when all of this happened. He died in 2007. <sighs> His children were still alive. In 2019, he had five of them. So the detectives from Montana approached all five of them, and three agreed to give their DNA. He had been cremated. I think they were thinking of digging him up. Yeah. But they went to the children, and they said, okay, and it was a match.
1: So in essence, they were unable to get a direct DNA sample from Gould. These children, biological children of his, they have different DNA than the sperm. But it's like a paternity test. So this is showing. We know that these are the children of Gould, and the sperm donor from Patty is also the biological father of these children. So that's how they're making a connection without this direct sample.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let's find out if we were right about some stuff. Kenneth Gould, the first thing we wanted to know, is this a local? He was a local. He was from Great Falls. Age, we talked about this was probably not someone in the age range of Patty and Dwayne. Kenneth was 29 Okay. when this happened. Now, this was what was surprising to me. No criminal history at all, and none after. So it is a one-off, it sounds like, unless he got away with something that we don't know about, but they ran him everywhere, so.
1: Right, at least with anything that's up in the databases, as well as his arrest records, it appears that he's clean. However, we talked about the one-off at this point, I wouldn't necessarily be entirely confident. He's he's a one off. There's many cases that have not been worked for DNA. Okay. They don't have their evidence up in the database, up in mm-hmm. the FBI's CODIS system. So there's a chance that he has other crimes. I think my big question is is did he know Dwayne or Patty?
0: So they aren't sure, but there's a good possibility. Okay. So they try to find a direct connection between Gould and Dwayne or Patty. And it's possible he knew Patty because he lived only about a mile from her house. And in the 50s, he was an avid horse rider. And in the 50s, he had several horses on a property that was just 600 yards from her house. I would presume he at least saw her around. Yeah. He also could have just gone to Lover's Lane to see who was there. And this is what happened. So we don't know for sure.
1: Yeah, and that'd be almost an impossible question at this point in order to figure out. Yeah. With him dead, maybe determining, you know, had had he been out at Lover's Lane himself before? Was there any indication that he had talked to Patty? It's so hard to be able to do that from 1956.
0: Yeah, so this was solved in June of 2021. So this was 65 years later. So what we know about Gould was that He had married a 16-year-old in 1952, which would have been four years before. He would have been, she was 16, he would have been 25. They had five children together. And not long after Dwayne and Patty were killed, Gould sold all of his property and moved out of the state, eventually he settled in Missouri. So you're right, there could have been cases in Missouri that hadn't been worked, and there's no connection, but obviously in the 50s, there's no connection between the law enforcement in Missouri and those in Montana.
1: And a point that I will make is is that so many agencies don't have evidence from cases from the 1950s. Yeah. They just got rid of it over the the decades. It's gone. Yeah. Or they didn't even collect it to begin with. You know, so there's a possibility that he's got others out there and they will never be linked back up to him.
0: Yeah. So after 65 years, the sheriff's office makes a big announcement that this case, this cold case, this Lover's Lane's case has finally been solved. It's too bad that Gould was dead at this point, yeah. but it was so important, I think, to Dwayne and Patty's families and just to the history of that area to be able to solve this case. So it's amazing. Boy, sometimes as we know, I'm looking at you, Paul Holes, it just takes one person to really latch onto a story. I don't know what possessed this detective in 2001 to look back and think, well, not 45 years ago, maybe I'll try this. But I guess because they had the evidence and it was stored well. I mean, that's amazing for a vaginal swab to be stored that well, to be able to pull DNA off of it 65 years later.
1: Yeah, the technology is is just so critical. You know, it, it's gotten to a point to where I fully expect that even older cases are going to be solved. Yeah. DNA is a hardy molecule. And as long as it's been treated okay over the, the decades, there's a great chance that the DNA could result in a DNA profile being obtained and then these cases being solved. So it's it's amazing. Obviously, the genealogy tool is showing its power. You know, here you have Gould, who had no criminal history. His DNA is not in any law enforcement database. And by utilizing the genealogy tool, they're able to identify him. He very possibly, like many of these offenders... You know, he recognized he committed a crime, a double homicide. He does not want to get caught. He probably lived the rest of his life completely paranoid and doing everything he could to avoid having law enforcement obtain his DNA. Because he knows, you know, in two thousand, he's dying in 2007. Yeah. Well, DNA really got into the public awareness yeah. in 1995 with the O.J. Simpson case. And so he's putting two and two together. I left my DNA. They could catch me now. And so that's what these offenders have been doing since the advent of, of the DNA databasing is they try to avoid getting their DNA put up there. But what they're not counting on is a third cousin they've never met decides to do genealogy. Yep. Well, that's what's giving us a starting point to identify them.
0: I've been hoping to bring a case to you that would be another illustration of a direct impact that your work on the Golden State Killer case had on other cases. There have been a couple of cases where we've kind of said, maybe this is someone who had heard you talk or had seen you on TV or had read about the case. This is an actual, they credit the Golden State Killer case for solving this case. And I can tell you, Paul, I interview enough people relatives who are descendants of people who have died a hundred years ago, and the pain is still there. It is still there when there's an unsolved case or a missing person. So anytime you can come with any kind of a resolution, I think it's fantastic, and you know the power of that. So I'm so happy to present this case to you as an illustration of the hard work you've done, as if you needed (laughs) to hear that. I know you hear it all the time, but you're hearing it from me now.
1: Well, you know, obviously with Golden State Killer, that was a team effort. You know, myself and Steve Kramer were were the ones that really were pursuing it. I am very proud that the efforts that we did on Golden State Killer has had this type of domino effect. You know, it really is a true revolution to these cases and to the families, mm-hmm. the victims' families, you know, they're getting answers. And sometimes those answers are very traumatic, but they want the answer. Right now, since Golden State Killer, of course, I've done presentations to law enforcement across the nation on, and, and actually internationally up in Canada, come to think of it, about... The genealogy tool and how it was used uh, to catch D'Angelo. Steve Kramer with the FBI has been going across the nation also teaching as well as working cases across the nation up until he just recently retired. Hmm. So law enforcement is getting more and more well-versed in this technology, and these laboratories are getting better and better at working the forensic evidence as well as doing the genealogy. So things are just going to snowball from here at this point.
0: Well, I think we deserve a week off. So we're going to take next week off. I'm sure we'll still talk, but we'll have next week off. And then we will be back with another fantastic case. So thank you for listening.
1: And thanks, Kate. That actually was a great case. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. This has been an Exactly Right production.
1: For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash bones sources.
0: Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi.
1: Research by Maren McClashan and Kate Winkler-Dawson.
0: Our mixing engineer is Ryo Baum.
1: Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel.